Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand now and turn one more time to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 11, I'm going to read in a moment verses 29 through the end of the book, that is through the end of chapter 12. And we arrive this morning at uh, the final message of this 13-week series on the book of Daniel. And for those who have been here for all 13 messages, thank you, bless you. If you missed any of the messages, uh, they are available on our website. There certainly is much more to be said about this great book. That's what preachers say when they're absolutely out of material. (laughs) But in this case, it's true. And I encourage you to go back and study this book in your private study time. It's particularly true of the first part of chapter 11, because I'm not going to read the first 28 verses, only summarize them. You remember that there have been numerous visions so far in the book of Daniel, some that were had by kings and others and some that Daniel received directly. And I said a few weeks ago that apocalyptical literature of which Daniel is in that genre is sort of like a screw. You know that a screw rotates upon an axis and with every rotation drives the point home deeper and deeper and in our case more clearly. And so beginning chapter two, for example, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon had a visual of vision of that great statue. And it had, remember, a gold head and uh, different varying elements from which the rest of the body was composed. And Daniel interpreted this dream to be different kingdoms that would follow one after the other. And then in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of a great tree from which all the peoples and animals of the world were nourished and shaded, and it was chopped down. And that tree turned out to be Nebuchadnezzar, who was brought low and humbled by the Lord before he ultimately restored him. In chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of four beasts who emerge from a tumultuous sea, one more monstrous than the next, until finally it came to that monster that could not be compared with anything. It had ten horns, it had teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and, and these again were these four empires that would follow one after the other. Then in chapter 8, we have the vision of the ram and the goat. This is Medo-Persia and the Greek empire coming at odds with one another. And then chapter 9, he has this revelation directly from an angel's mouth that tells him the interpretation of the 70 weeks. And then beginning in chapter 10, as we saw last week, he has what I'm calling his final vision. The vision was introduced in chapter 10. The body of it is in chapter 11 and Its interpretation is in chapter 12. And so let's begin today by summarizing the first 28 verses of chapter 11. You remember that Daniel was Jewish. And so his primary concern throughout his life was for his people, the holy city of Jerusalem, and for the temple. And so he prayed three times a day with his windows open facing Jerusalem. He did this for seven decades. And he read in Jeremiah that the captivity, this chastening of the Lord against the nation of Israel for their idolatrous practices would be for a period of 70 years. But the angel showed him in the vision in chapter 9 that 
um, at the end of the 70 years, indeed, there would be some Jewish people who would return to Jerusalem. But the period of chastening would go on well into the future. In fact, until the time of the Messiah, which was over 400 years away, and even beyond that, until the final seven-year period, we know today as the Great Tribulation. And so to summarize the first 28 verses of chapter 11, remember from chapter 10 that Daniel is in the presence of a holy angel who is described in incredible vivid detail from the kind of clothing he's wearing to the belt he's wearing until how his face shone like lightning. And so the angel's appearance is breathtaking to Daniel. In fact, it makes him incredibly afraid and near to death. And to calm Daniel's heart, the angel touches Daniel on the head and gains his attention. And beginning in verse 2 of chapter 11, he gives the message. And what follows is an incredibly detailed and incredibly accurate prediction of future events from Daniel's perspective. Now, up until this time, the visions have been generalities, that is, broad outlines of future events. What we know for sure is that there would be four great world empires, beginning with the Babylonians, replaced by the Medo-Persians, who would be replaced by the Greeks, who ultimately would be replaced by Rome. And then there's final, finally one unnamed kingdom represented in the statue by the feet with ten toes, which were comprised of a mixture of iron and another substance. That is, it was strong in one sense, but brittle in another sense. And his empire, this empire, was replaced, as I said, one after the other. But ultimately, it begins in chapter 11 with a Persian king who is the fourth in a line of Persian kings. And we know that, of course, from history to be Xerxes. And Xerxes was ambitious. And so he attacked Greece. And of course, he was thwarted in that attack. And Greece ultimately wins. And now Greece emerges as the great world empire. And it is led ultimately by a young general, a prince that we know as Alexander the Great. Remember, Alexander the Great's life didn't last long. In his very early 30s, he died. And his empire was divided into four, four generals, Seleucus, Ptolemy, Antigonus, and Cassander. Now look at verse four, I will read that. It says, but as soon as he has arisen, this is Alexander the Great, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants. Now that's an interesting and yet very specific note. Alexander the Great had some children, he had siblings, and these generals murdered all of them. They knew that the people would probably get behind either one of his siblings or his descendants or even his wife and so murdered them all. And so this is incredibly accurate in its detailed prophecy. And so indeed that happened. These four generals divided up the empire like the four points of the compass. And from this point in chapter 11, Daniel's vision focuses upon two of those four kingdoms, which are described simply as the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. Now, Daniel oriented his direction from Jerusalem, didn't he? And so I take that to be it's a kingdom north of Israel and a kingdom south of Israel. And these undoubtedly are the Seleucids of Syria to the north and the Ptolemies of Egypt to the south. And these two kingdoms for centuries went back and forth fighting and invading one another's territory. And guess what nation was caught right in the crossfire every time? It was Israel. And therefore Israel suffered calamity after calamity. And so finally, here in chapter 11, one king of the north emerges stronger than the rest. 
and he does great harm to God's people. And we've already seen this in past chapters to be a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember he gave himself that title. It means God in the flesh. And he demanded people worship him as, as deity, an incredibly wicked man. So, so let's pick up our reading now in chapter 11 and verse 29, which I believe describes this Antiochus Epiphanes. And at the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. So he's invaded Egypt before by way of Israel, and now he's coming back to do it again. But the last time it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him, and therefore he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress, and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. And by smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly towards the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity, and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure into the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, on your outline, our first point is Israel is brutalized. Antiochus was a brutal and evil man. His own people gave him the title of the crazy one. He was defeated by the Roman Navy as predicted here in verse 30. And, and so he's on his way back to the Northern Empire of Syria and he decides to take his frustration out on Israel. And so he does. Now, many of the Jews joined him and were turncoats. But there was a faithful remnant who resisted, which are mentioned in verse 32. And history tells us this is a group of people we know as the Maccabees. Now, you'll note in verse 32, look at it again. It says, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Now, this specific prophecy is for the nation of Israel. We have to be careful about reading ourselves into prophecy that was meant for someone else. But I think this is a universal truth that tribulations come to every epic and every generation, don't they? And here is something that is universal truth, but the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Well, surely Daniel must be thinking after that all happens, that has to be the end of God's chastening of his chosen people. Well, unfortunately for Daniel, not by a long shot, in fact, verse 35 says, this chastening, this refining and purging, this making pure will take place until the end time. That is until the end of all human history because it is still to come at the appointed time. He wants to know, Daniel, we're about to come to the end of this 70 years that Jeremiah talked about, but this chastening is going to go on until the very end of time. And of course, history tells us that it certainly has. And so Israel is brutalized by Antiochus, and, um, and, and yet finally Antichrist is recognized. I, I think it's important to see in verse 35 it says, until the end time, because there you have a transition. Now he's getting our thoughts and our minds towards the very end. And then he says in verse 36, then, 
And I take that to be that in the end time. So you have to fast forward past Antiochus into the very end of time. And so now he's transitioning from this uh, kingdom of the north until the very last kingdom preceding Christ, which is the kingdom of the Antichrist. So look at verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases. This is not talking about Antiochus. This is the Antichrist. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every God and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for price. Here is Antichrist recognized. You remember that Daniel had that vision of the four beasts that we mentioned earlier. And the fourth and final beast was this indescribable monster. And he had these tin horns and vicious iron teeth and incredible iron claws. And we said, undoubtedly, this is the Roman empire, which smashed to pieces any empire that got in their way. But from among the 10 horns emerged another horn, which displaced three of the 10. And it was a boastful horn. Remember it had a face and a mouth like a man. And with that mouth, it boasted of his exploits. And we identified that horn at that time as Antichrist. Well, here he is again. Remember the screw has turned another rotation and he's given us a, a more vivid picture of who the Antichrist is and what he will do. And he comes after the Roman Empire, but from one of those nations, those 10 nations that had comprised the Roman Empire. And he's described here in his character. And so if you're taking notes, here's a number of words that describe the Antichrist character. For, for, for one, he's arrogant. Verse 36, he will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every God. Now, most politicians, and the Antichrist starts out as a politician, can be described as pretty arrogant, right? Not all of them, but, but, but many of them are. And um, we have come to expect that from our leaders, unfortunately. But his arrogance is beyond the pale. He magnifies himself not only above his political enemies, but above even deity, which makes him blasphemous, doesn't it? And so that's another word to describe the Antichrist. He's blasphemous. But on a personal level, he is cold and heartless, that he has no normal human affections for other people. He says he will show no regard for the gods of his father, or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other God, for he will magnify himself above them all. He loves himself and he disregards any familial affection and any normal human attraction. He worships one thing and one thing only, and that is power and absolute power. Look at verse 38, but instead, that instead of worshiping the gods of his father, he will honor a God of what? Fortresses, which means military might. A God whom his fathers did not know, he will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones and treasure. And so to feed this lust for power requires warfare and warfare is incredibly expensive. And so this man must constantly 
be taking over the natural resources of other countries. And so that makes him very warlike. Verse 39, he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign God. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. And so not only is he warlike, he is shrewd. He builds alliances with other leaders to help him in his evil strategy. And he gives out gifts to keep their affections. Now, other parts of scripture tell us that this goes on for three and a half years leading up until this time, there's a treaty. And so this antichrist for all the world looks like a friend and a protector to Israel. But at the end of that three and a half years, he turns on them and he invades them. And we see that in verse 41, look at it. It says, he will also enter the beautiful land. So remember this is Daniel. And he's receiving this. And where's the beautiful land to Daniel? Well, it's Israel, isn't it? And so this Antichrist is going to invade Israel. And many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab, and the uttermost parts of the sons of Ammon. So his attention is focused in Palestine. And some of these other countries uh, down there to the east are ignored for the time being. Now, I I believe that uh, we're looking... um, without exception, at someone who has incredible lust for power and who wants to rule and reign. Remember, Israel was such a critical geographical piece. Uh, To the north of it lay Europe and the great empires of the world. To the south of it, Africa and Egypt. So it's always been a very strategically important place. And so here's where the Antichrist wants to establish his ultimate empire. Now, This, I believe, to be the final kingdom, the one ultimately that is smashed to pieces by the stone cut out of the mountain without human hands, that is defeated and smashed to dust, the scripture says, by the Lord's Christ. And though the nation of Israel still faced centuries of abuse and sufferings at the time of the writing of of the book of Daniel, he is saying to Daniel very clearly that ultimately, God will redeem Israel. And so the question becomes, how? How will God ultimately redeem Israel from all of these years of persecutions and warfare? Well, to answer that question, we come to chapter 12. Now at that time, that is at the time when the Antichrist has pitched his tents, verse 45 says, between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, that is Jerusalem, Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. All of this is setting up perfectly for Christ to come and destroy the power of the Antichrist. And so here's how he's going to do it. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who has found written in the book will be rescued. And so here's the ultimate promise to Daniel Remember, who's been praying three times a day for his people, for Jerusalem and for the temple. He's saying, Daniel, your prayers are going to be ultimately answered. I am going to ultimately rescue your people. But it's going to be after centuries of chastening, purification and abuse at the hands of these pagan empires. And he's going to do it supernaturally. He's going to call upon the archangel Michael, who is the protector of Israel. And there are many who believe that this is actually speaking of Christ himself. The Bible doesn't say that, 
but there are some who do. Whatever the case, God is certainly the one who sends the protection and the redemption. He's mentioned by Gabriel, that is Michael, as coming to his aid. Remember in a previous chapter, remember when Gabriel was trying to get this message to Daniel and the prince of Persia, this demonic force resisted him and Michael came to his rescue. So, so here's this time of distress he's mentioning up here and he describes it as a time of distress and tribulation such as never has occurred since the nation of Israel. I believe this to be what Jeremiah refers to in chapter 30 of the book named after him as Jacob's trouble or Jacob's distress. I believe this is the final seven weeks of persecution. And many of the Old Testament prophets speak of this ultimate tribulation such as never has occurred before. For example, the prophet Zechariah says in this time of tribulation, two thirds of the Jewish population on earth at that time will be killed. And yet God will redeem the remaining Jews in the world with a great ingathering as they finally accept their Messiah. And you remember when I said, when we began this study 13 weeks ago, that what you understand the Bible to say about the future of the nation of Israel will determine your interpretation of the book of Daniel, specifically this last vision. There are some known today as preterists who see the church as having replaced Israel completely in God's covenant promises. That is anywhere we see God redeeming Israel in the final days, we could just strike the word Israel and place that with the word church. And I don't believe that for a number of reasons, um, primarily because I just can't get past what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. So let, let's turn there. Maybe Romans chapter 11 in your New Testament. Paul is anticipating a question about the nation of Israel. Remember, Paul's a Jewish man himself. He says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, trained meticulously in the law. And so at the beginning of chapter 11, he intercepts a question he expects to come. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And so that is ultimate rejection of the nation of Israel. He, he answers his own question. He says, may it never be. Now that's a Greek phrase, may genata, which is the strongest negative in the Greek language. It's incredibly intense. It's not just no, it, it goes way beyond that. Paul can't imagine a scenario where God would ultimately do away with the nation of Israel. And so he goes on down to verse 25, and here, here's the point he makes. He says, for I do not want you brothers to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That is until this time of the Gentiles that Daniel mentions here, Daniel didn't understand it completely, uh, but in hindsight, we could see that the Lord Jesus saved not only Jewish people, but he died to save people from every tribe and tongue and nation, right? And so as Gentiles are brought in, when, when that, that finally is completed, that period of history, here's what's gonna happen, verse 26. And so all Israel will be what? Saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God says, I'm going to fulfill my covenant with them. Even though 
they've been idolatrous and adulterous. I'm still God. And even though there've been centuries of years of chastening and there's still the worst yet to come, this period of the great tribulation, ultimately he says all Israel is going to be saved. Now, a lot of Christians, a lot of Baptists have had a hard time with that word all. Does that mean all Jewish people are gonna be saved? Well, I take it to be all who survive the tribulation. Remember, two-thirds of them are going to be killed. There's only about 15 million Jewish people in the world today. And so if this were to happen today, that, that means that 10 million of them would die. That would only leave 5 million. I take it literally that all of them ultimately are going to recognize their Savior at the end of this tribulation period. Well, did Jesus have anything to say about this time? Well, he certainly did. Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now, again, sometimes we try to apply things that are prophecy meant for other people. We have to be careful about that. Jesus here is speaking in a Jewish context using Jewish imagery to Jewish people. Now look at verse 15. Jesus is speaking about the end times. He says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel. Now I said 13 weeks ago that one of the reasons that I believe so strongly that Daniel is literal history is that none other than the Lord Jesus endorsed it as such. And here's the place in which he does that. Matthew chapter 24. He's quoting Daniel and affirming what Daniel had to say was prophetic truth. He says, let the reader understand then those who are in Judea, now where's Judea? That's southern Israel where Jerusalem is. So he's talking about a Jewish place. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on what? The Sabbath. The Sabbath was a Jewish day. And for there will be a great tribulation. There's that word. If you ever wonder where we get that term, great tribulation, it was spoken by Jesus. And then he confirms what Daniel said and what Jeremiah said and what Zechariah says. It is a time such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Remember I said two thirds of the Jews are going to be killed. And he said, if God had not shortened that time, all of them would, but he is merciful. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ or there he is, don't believe him for false Christ, false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders as to mislead if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. And so he's saying, I am confirming what the angel said to Daniel was true, and I'm telling you it's going to happen just like he said. And so you're probably wondering, what about the church? Well, here's a little secret about the book of Daniel. Daniel didn't know a thing about the church, okay? We, we have to read the New Testament. Specifically, we have to read the book of 1 Thessalonians and the book of Revelation to find out what happens to the church. And so uh, in three weeks... We're going to start on the book of Revelation, and it's going to tell us what happens to the church. But remember, Daniel's concern is not the church here in chapter 12. His concern 
is for his people, Israel. And here is the ultimate point as we go back to the book of Daniel. The point is that all the chastening of God against Israel will culminate in this seven-year period of unprecedented suffering, which ends with the return of Christ and the establishment of his visible kingdom. And the thing that marks it out is an amazing event. Look at verse 2, the resurrection actualized. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but to the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. When the Bible speaks of resurrections, plural, we know that when Christ was resurrected, the scripture says that he was the firstborn of many to come. That is of a series of resurrections. Now, my eschatology, I'm going to give it away before we get to Revelation. I believe that the church, those who've died in Christ, are going to be resurrected at the rapture. And I believe that to be preceding that seven years of tribulation as we get to Revelation. I'll tell you why I believe that. Um, and I believe this resurrection comes at the end of that, seven years later, and this is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints who are resurrected for the purpose of glorifying Christ. Look at verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, I ask you a rhetorical question often, and I think you know the answer by now. Why does God do everything that he does? For his own glory, right? That includes the resurrection. We are going to be resurrected to glorify God. I heard one pastor this week put it this way. He believes that our rewards in heaven will be our capacity to reflect the glory of God. And so if you have won many to faith in Christ through evangelism, and you have many crowns and rewards laid up for you in heaven, that means your ability to glorify God eternally. And I think he's onto something there. Because that's what we were made for in the first place. You look up in the stars, in the skies at night. There are stars that are seen close and you can just pick them out. And there, there are others that are, that are dimmer. All of them shine and reflect the glory of God. But some have a capacity from our perspective um, that others don't. And that seems to be what he's saying here. That those who are resurrected will awake and they will give God glory forever. Now... Stick with me. I know this is mind-boggling, but uh, these last few verses are very, very important. Beginning in verse 4, he sort of formalizes this prophecy. He wants Daniel to remember for the rest of his life, this was not bad pizza you ate last night. This is a message from God. And he, so he formalizes this prophecy beginning in verse 4. He says, but as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Well, that sounds like he's saying, Daniel, don't tell anybody about this. Uh, seal this away. I don't think that's it at all. In those days when they had an important legal document, particularly an edict from the king, they would roll it up and remember they would seal with the king's wax and signet ring the scroll and they'd put it in a clay pot. And then they would seal the pot and on the outside of that pot they would put a summary of what it said. 
And so I, I think what he's saying is this is absolutely going to happen, but it's sealed up for a future time. Daniel, you won't live to see the fulfillment of all of this. Then he describes what it will be like in that generation when this is fulfilled. He says, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Well, a lot of theologians look at that and they look at our own time and say, that certainly describes us, right? We go back and forth, at least before the COVID with air travel and we have the internet, knowledge is exponentially increasing all the time. I think there's some validity to that. But that phrase, go back and forth, has to do with the eyes. Searching, searching, searching. People are, are searching for knowledge at a time when this tribulation comes. And then he says, verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing. I take that to be two other angels. One on this bank of the river and one on the other bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, that's the angel who gave him the message, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? Isn't that what we've been asking forever? Isn't that what Peter asked Jesus right before he ascended from the Mount of Olives? Is it at this time that you're going to come in your kingdom? And we don't know the time. And by the way, if you are reading or watching pastors who claim to know when all this is going to happen exactly, rest assured they're a false teacher. Because the Bible says it's not given to us to know exactly the time. We can watch the signs and see that it's approaching, but we're not to set dates. Verse 7, I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and he raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. So this is a, a two-handed oath. And when you go to testify in a court of law, you're probably going to be asked to raise your right hand. Swear on the Bible. He raises both hands. This is a double-handed oath. And swore by him who lives forever, that is by God in heaven, that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will complete it. That is, I take it's that last three and a half years of the tribulation, time, time, and half a time. But, but here's the point. He says, I'm not going to give you a date. I'm going to tell you this, that as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all of these events will come. That is when God has brought Israel to its lowest point. That's when Christ is going to intervene. And I take it that's when all the nation are going to bow to his lordship. He says, verse 8, as for me, I heard but could not understand. <laughs> Do you relate to that? As we've studied these 12 chapters, of, this is Daniel speaking, by the way. Daniel, who received the visions directly, says, you know, I heard all this, but I don't really understand it all. And so if you're here today and you still have questions, you're in good company. Daniel was like that. He was a little bit confused. There is an element to mystery, to prophecy. And as we study Daniel, and certainly as we study the book of Revelation in weeks ahead, the key is we must remain humble. And never get to the point that, that we understand every nuance of it. We must ask the Lord to help us every step of the way. But here's the point I want to make. And this is the point that the angels are making to Daniel. God gives his people prophecy not to cause fear and confusion, but just the opposite. He gives us prophecy to encourage us. Look at verse 9. Daniel says, look, I'm confused. The angel says, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. 
Many will be purged, purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And from that time, the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up. There will be 1290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1335 days. But as for you, go your way. How long? To the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again with your allotted portion at the end of the age. So if you don't understand all of, of the prophecy here, I don't either. In fact, I don't have a clue what that verse 11 means. All of those days. And I haven't read a commentator who does have a clue. But I know God does. And that's what his point to Daniel is. Daniel, you don't have to figure out every nuance of this prophecy if you believe the most important truth that God is sovereign. That even if you die, and he says, by the way, Daniel, you are going to die before any of this happens. But don't worry because God's going to raise you from the dead. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul said to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Let, let's, let's finish with this, shall we? I think this summarizes the whole thing. In 1 Thessalonians, well, before we get there, let, let's go to chapter 4. We almost never hear this text in context. We read it at funerals, which we should and we're commanded to do, to comfort one another with these words. But here's what Paul said to the church concerning the resurrection. He says, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the answer to your question, what happens to your church? First Thessalonians 4.13. I believe the Lord raptures them. And the reason I believe that is before the tribulation is because of what I read in the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, what? Encourage one another and build one another up in the faith just as you're also doing. Prophecy, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament, is for the purpose of encouraging the saints to persevere into the end. Remember what I said back in Daniel eleven thirty two. 32? God always has his people in every epoch of history. He has a remnant of faithful Jewish people. He has, um, even today, though we're in the vast majority, minority rather, um, Christian people. And so let me, let me just read it again. Verse 32, chapter 11, Daniel. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Now, some of those people may be in this room. We may very well be living in that last days and some in this room may live to see it with their own eyes. But we know this, there will be a church for Jesus to come back for, right? And when he does, there's going to be some on earth who are faithful, who are going to discern the times. And so God always has his people. And then we also see that there are those who will have insight, Legan Duncan is a pastor, and he says that prophecy is not merely the telling of history beforehand, but prophecy is God's interpreting of that history. 
And so as we read history books, see God in all of that. History is not a random, chaotic set of circumstances that are all disconnected. History is the unfolding of God's eternal redemptive plan. And I think most importantly, as you study the book of Daniel, remember this, God is sovereign. He is in total control. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was in control. God humbled him and made him eat grass like an animal before he restored him. Alexander the Great thought he was the greatest king that ever lived. He died in his early 30s, a miserable drunk. Those that came after him, one after the other, one called himself God in the flesh. God brought him low. And that will be the case throughout human history until ultimately Christ comes and establishes his kingdom on earth. But as I said last week, as you look on the news and things seem to be getting worse and worse, they are. And here's the good news, it gets worse. In fact, in that same 24th chapter of Matthew that I read from earlier, Jesus said, when you see these things happening, the earthquakes and the droughts and the famines, the wars, these are like the beginning of birth pains. I have a friend who lives in Virginia. About two weeks ago, they had a pretty sizable earthquake in Virginia, of all places. And so I texted him early Saturday morning. I said, did you feel the earthquake? He said, no, but they did south of us. And I said, it's the beginning of birth pains. <laughs> and I was half joking, but seriously, the Bible says one of the signs of this time will be earthquakes. And it's like birth pains. And you women understand this. When you feel those first contractions, there's a little twinge, I'm told. But as time goes on, the pain becomes more intense and the contractions come closer together. And that's what we're to notice as we wait on the Lord's coming. All of these things that are happening in the world are not disconnected and chaotic circumstances that have nothing to do with one another. They're God's plan unfolding and he says it's going to become worse and worse and ultimately it's going to lead to this seven year period of suffering like has never existed. But fear not, fear not because God wins in the end and his people win who are in him. Romans 8.1, memorize it, write it down. Seal it on your heart. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You don't have to fear when you read the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation because God wins in the end. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this 13-week study of Daniel. And Lord, I confess, I don't understand it completely. Fathers, there are a few things that are absolutely certain. You're sovereign. Kings and queens and kingdoms and presidents and administrations come and go. They're just little footnotes in time. But history is unfolding and working out exactly according to your timeline and according to your plan. And we know that all of human history is moving unalterably towards Christ coming to make all things right. Whether you think that's at the end of the millennium or um, the mid-tribulation or pre-tribulation, Father, ultimately those things are unimportant. 
beside the fact that Jesus ultimately rules and reigns forever. And so, Lord, I pray if there's someone in the sound of my voice today who does not know Jesus as Lord and Savior, Father, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that they would turn from their sins in repentance and receive you, confess you with their mouth as Lord. Father, I thank you for many in this room who are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and Father, as we look at all the things that are happening on the world scene, if we're not careful, we'll allow them to cause us anxiety and depression, worry. Some are even overwhelmed, Lord. Remember what Paul told Timothy, that you've not given us a spirit of fear. But you want us to have sound minds and to think clearly. Daniel was told by the angel that in that day, there would be those who would think clearly, have insight, and be strengthened by the word. So Father, I pray that all of us would be found in that category. Father, that we would see every event as history as moving us one day closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Help us to live our lives as if today could be the day. Father, give us an urgency in our evangelism. Give us a seriousness and a sobriety in the way we order our days. And Father, may we shine like lights in the world that others may see our good deeds and glorify our God who is in heaven. May we draw others because of our faithfulness, Lord. We know ultimately you give the salvation, but you use us to be the means of bringing people to faith. Do that, Father, not for our sake, but for your name, your renown, and your glory. And I pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.